Hey guys, welcome to the show. We're going to be talking to Chris Viscardi today. Uh, we're going to talk about his work on Gatsby Themes, um, hiring juniors and Rocket League, which is pretty cool. Um, if you want to support the show, visit us at techjunior.dev. Please hit subscribe. Uh, we send out an email once a week with the latest episode, along with some cool things we think you guys might enjoy. Um, secondly, if you can tell a friend about the podcast or tweet about something you liked on the podcast, that'd be great. Also, if you can leave us a review on iTunes um, and just spread the word, uh, anything you can do uh, is greatly appreciated. And uh, let's get into it. Okay. Uh, welcome to Tech Junior. My name is Lee Warwick. I'm a full stack JavaScript developer. I have with me, as always, Eddie. Hey, it's Eddie. Um, <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also a developer, uh, yeah. front-end developer. And we have a special guest with us. We have Chris Biscardi. Uh, if you can introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Chris Biscardi. Uh, I'm an independent consultant, work with uh, startups, mostly in the open source space. And most recently with Gatsby, right? Yeah, most recently I've been doing a lot of work with Gatsby. Awesome. So um, before we get into that and uh, kind of like the, the really exciting stuff that you're doing with Gatsby and themes, uh, can you just tell us about, you know, yourself and your kind of journey into development uh, briefly and, and kind of like how you got started and how you ended up working with the Gatsby team and as a consultant? Yeah, sure. Um, so way, way back, um, I went to college to play volleyball and I did an art major uh, while I was in college for playing volleyball. And they gave us access to like the Adobe suite of tools um, for free and like a computer lab. And I didn't really have a strong computer and I didn't have anything like that. Um, but I started doing a bunch of artwork and design related stuff. And then one day decided that I didn't want to just like draw pretty pictures kind of thing. Uh, and I needed to learn how to make them work under the hood. And I didn't, I basically didn't want to go and tell people what to do for the rest of my life and just like hope they did it. Um, so I taught myself how to program uh, with Flash and ActionScript. Uh, and then shortly after that got my first ever like freelance contract for like i don't know 10 15 dollars an hour something like that something something ridiculously low for uh what i now know software engineers can make um and then i've done a bunch of open source since then i mostly do independent consulting um got hired at docker and built out a front-end team at docker uh did that for about two years um went back to independently consulting uh, tried a couple other companies, one or two, uh, and now being independent is sort of where my bread and butter is, so that's where I went back to. And then uh, I guess the last time I opened up space for contracting, I tweeted out, and um, I have a fairly long history with Gatsby, uh, having worked with them since like 0.7 or something like that was my first commit. Um, so when I opened up space, Kyle was like, oh, you know, we have this thing that we're trying to build, uh, would you like to come build it for us? Um, yeah, and that's how I got involved with Gatsby, and that was about, I guess, six months ago or something like that, maybe a little longer. So they've been uh, a large client of mine for uh, quite a while now. That's awesome. Uh, so it sounds like most of your um, your experience has been as like an independent, uh, not a freelancer, but I guess a contractor. Yeah, I guess in the beginning I would have called it more freelancing or contracting or whatever, right? Um, and the difference between that and what I do now is that um, I call what I do now consulting because 
it's more around the knowledge that I've accrued over a long period of time uh, and giving that knowledge to other people rather than me uh, being sort of like a low-level line worker and trying to crank out everything. So like the themes project was something that had to be sort of right before we shipped it. Uh, so I did a lot of sort of exploratory work and then pulling it back into turning it into Gatsby APIs. As opposed to earlier in my career, it would have been just like uh, somebody has some work that they need to do and they don't have time to do it, so they gave it to me. So there's a slight, um, slight difference in the approach that I take now to my contracts versus the approach I used to take then to, uh, I'm not even sure you could really call them contracts back then. So what kind of, um, what kind of tech stack are, are you kind of um, used to working with? Because uh, I'm assuming you don't do like ActionScript and, and all that anymore, right? <laughs> no, no. Um, so yeah, ActionScript obviously was one day killed by uh, Apple. And I was looking at that going, ah, well, I guess it's time to learn something else. And uh, that was JavaScript. Unceremoniously, right? They were just like, and it's dead. And then it was, right? <laughs> yeah, it, they had a lot of power. Um, so it was just sort of like I learned JavaScript. And then, um, let's see, I did a number of other languages. When Node came out in 0.2, I started working with that. Uh, so I've been doing that for a number of years now. And then I got into more of the like esoteric languages, um, like uh, Clojure, Haskell, Erlang, stuff like that. Um, and my two main like consulting languages for a while were JavaScript and Haskell. Uh, when I went to Docker, I learned Go. So that became sort of, that replaced Haskell as my main consulting language these days. Um, so now my tech stack is sort of like JavaScript, Go, um, React, GraphQL, that kind of stuff. CSS and JS. <laughs> what, uh, what pushed you to check out like Haskell, Erlang, Go, all that stuff? Uh, I think originally I was looking at sort of like the mystical aura around like those ecosystems where like there were a bunch of people that looked like they were smart people saying, oh, these things are really hard, but they're also really powerful. Um, so I was like, okay, well, if these like really smart people who have learned this thing say that it's really powerful and worth learning, uh, then I should go and learn that because if I learn the really powerful thing, then like maybe other things will be easier or something like that. I don't you know, the thought process when I was earlier career was not necessarily uh, solid, but <laughs> uh, but I did it, and then uh, it actually did turn out to be very useful uh, long term. And then uh, I would credit my working with Haskell with my ability to recognize that React was a good abstraction when it came out, because uh, I looked at it and I was sort of like, oh yeah, unidirectional data flow, yeah, I know this, pure functions, yeah, cool, okay, this makes sense to me. Um, and at the time, I guess I was working in like Backbone or something like that. I mean, if you've ever worked in Backbone, you know that you have to sort of like build a framework on top of Backbone if you choose Backbone for your app. Uh, and that was really painful. <laughs> so I know there's a lot of buzz around like Go and Erlang and, and that kind of thing. Um, what are those languages good for and, and kind of what can you use them for? Uh, yeah, so Go is more of like... I guess the big projects written in Go right now are like the Kubernetes, the Dockers, the containerization uh, software kind of spaces. Um, Erlang is more about um, distributed computing kind of stuff and sort of uh, it's more functional, obviously, and things like that. So the big projects in Erlang are like eJabberD, uh, which is, I guess, what uh, WhatsApp was originally built on kind of thing, right? So there aren't as many large projects in Erlang, but the projects tend to be like massive or they tend to be like 
for a specific use case of um, I have a lot of computers, I need to pass messages between them, uh, things like that. Um, and then, yeah, so Go is basically, if you don't want to write C and you don't want to write JavaScript, uh, then Go is a good spot to be in. Uh, you get static binaries, you can deploy them fairly easily. Um, they're not super, super small binaries, but they're also not really massive binaries. Like if you deploy a node project, you just get this massive thing. Right. If you deploy a Java project, you just get this massive thing that you have to ship. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, there's a lot of kind of uh, mysticism around those languages. Like, yeah. you know, maybe if you're hanging out in a tech community and you're the JavaScript developer or something, and then some backend developer pipes up and is just like, go is the new thing. And, and you go, <laughs> man, I keep hearing about this language, but I have no idea what it's for or if I should look at it or, you know, I've, I've kind of got my hands full with JavaScript and front end development. Uh, so I can I definitely appreciate, you know, um, you coming on and, and kind of explaining some of that. Uh, going along with that, would you recommend, you know, a JavaScript developer to maybe check out one of those languages? Uh, I would definitely recommend to check out Go if you're uh, sort of inclined to start building servers, uh, building APIs, things like that. Um, as for like Erlang and Haskell and like the Lisps of the world and things like that, I think that if you want to expand your knowledge and you have the time and space and uh, available monetary resources to be able to spend time on extra things, then yes, go do it. Uh, if you don't, um, maybe focus on something that you can use more directly in your career path. Uh, and then when you have time, go check them out. Uh, yeah, I know Go can be used for things like, um, uh, what's it called? AWS, right? Yeah. So you can write like Lambda functions and stuff in Go. Yeah, for sure. So definitely uh, a useful uh, thing to, to get your hands into. Um, kind of going along with what you were saying about, you know, kind of focus on what you have to um, I'm a front end developer, so Eddie's also a front end developer and static site generators just like have a ton of buzz around them recently. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Gatsby obviously is kind of like huge in this space. So, uh, can you just tell us about, you know, really quickly what Gatsby is and is it really a static site generator? Yeah. So Gatsby is, um, I guess ostensibly a static site generator, right? Like you can use it to generate a static site. Um, but the power of Gatsby is not necessarily in its static site generation. If the only thing you want to do is translate like one markdown file to one HTML file, you know, you could probably do that with like a CLI tool and be done, right? Um, if you want to build a marketing site or multiple marketing sites, or you have a CMS like WordPress or a Contentful or a Dado CMS or something like that, and you need to pull in a bunch of data, um, if you have more interactive requirements for your UIs. If you have, um, not that you should be doing like scroll bar control or anything like that, but if you want to control the scroll or anything like that, or if you want to just have like something clicks and then it animates in and like you don't have to refresh the entire page, um, Gatsby is strong in all of those areas. So basically, if you are building something that is very, 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 very simple, uh, maybe you don't have to use Gatsby. If you're building something that is for a product and you want to get it done and you want to get it done fast and you want to have a good user experience and you don't want to have to reload like, the entire page every time you go to a different page and um, 
you're trying to pull in data from a bunch of different sources like Twitter and Airtable and uh, CMSs, then Gatsby turns out to be a really good fit for that. So I really call it like a progressive web app generator um, rather than a static site generator. So kind of going along with that, um, probably a lot of people are you know familiar with or kind of knowledgeable of React and Create React app and that sort of thing. Um, is is it possible to use Gatsby for all the same use cases as a Create React app application? Or is there, because of the build step, like certain limitations to it? Or are you kind of like ready to go with building whatever kind of interactive dynamic stuff that you need to with Gatsby? Yeah, so I guess Gats, I would call Gatsby a more powerful Create React app. Um, you can use it to do all of the same things. And you know how Create React app doesn't let you touch any of the configuration, which is why you end up with these like uh, React app rewired projects and things like that that are sort of like patching configuration patches onto Create React app. Um, you can do anything that you can do in Create React app in Gatsby. Uh, and you also get access to the configuration and you get access to the ecosystem of plugins and themes and things like that. So if you have a use case that is fairly common, there's probably a plugin that you can just install and start running with. If your use case is much more custom, you also have that available to you. Also in, in that kind of uh, light, I know create React app, you have to like eject and manually touch the Webpack configuration. But uh, if you wanted to customize Gatsby, like you said, there's a ton of plugins and stuff you can bring in to kind of fit whatever use case you're looking for. And then at the same time, kind of compose them together. One of the other uh, really powerful things about that model is that Gatsby doesn't just like dump the Webpack config on you. It has a bunch of low level, like sort of APIs that you can use to modify Webpack configs and modify the Babel config and modify like uh, things that wrap the entire application or things that wrap specific pages or all of those sorts of things are sort of like higher level APIs than just a raw Webpack config that are available to you if you need to do anything custom. Just for my own kind of understanding, uh, I know that like there's a lot of buzz around Next.js and Svelte um, along with Gatsby. Uh, can you maybe describe how they are different as far as like their build step and rendering? Sure. Um, so just to target uh, Svelte first, Svelte is an interesting uh, place in the sort of design space of uh, front end frameworks. I think their static, their main static site generator would be called Sapper uh, instead of the core Svelte framework. Um, and it's basically just a static site generator for you or like a progressive web app generator. Uh, but it doesn't have all of the extra like content mesh data accessing uh, toolkit that Gatsby has. Um, so it's similar to Gatsby in a way that Gatsby would have been in like 0 0.7 or something like that pre-GraphQL APIs, pre-Data Mesh, pre-a uh, pre bunch of things. Um, and then next is more if you want to build a server and render a fresh page to everybody all the time, uh, you can use Next to do that. So uh, Gatsby is more of a pre-compile step where you build a bunch of HTML files and then send it to Netlify or S3 buckets or whatever you want to send it to. And then your HTML files come down, your extra JavaScript comes down, and then it's now a dynamic application on the front end. Uh, next is more of a, if you want to run a server and do uh, dynamic things when people get, do gets or like posts against your server or something like that, or you want to offer an API, uh, that's more useful for that. Because Gatsby doesn't have a server, right? 
Right. Yeah. So Gatsby lives entirely on the front end as a, a static site. Uh, so you can host it on GitHub or Netlify or you know tons of uh, free resources to, to host um, a static site as opposed to Next.js, which is an actual live server that's running. Um, and then as I understand it, Gatsby kind of, whenever you uh, go to a certain page, you get like the pre-optimized, like as much stuff as they could build beforehand uh, rendered content before you get to the dynamic stuff, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the way that Gatsby's like sort of load order works is that you have this HTML file that's already built out that has all your content. Say like we're looking at a blog and it's your blog post, right? So the blog post HTML comes down with a bunch of script tags and a bunch of style tags and whatever you have in there. Um, so the person can just start reading immediately, right? Because it's just the HTML file. Um, and then after that downloads, all of your scripts and uh, other things download, right? Anything dynamic downloads. And that allows you to go from one page to another uh, just by downloading the additional blog post JSON file, right? So if you move from one blog post to another, you don't have to re-download all of the HTML surrounding all of the blog posts. You just download the content of the blog post, which uh, makes it a little bit more network efficient. And then the other thing is that uh, Gatsby will preload a bunch of resources for you. So the HTML file downloads, your JavaScript downloads, and then you start hovering over different links that you're going to actually go to. Uh, Gatsby uses that information to actually preload a page such that the next page seems like it's loading significantly faster just because you've hovered over a link and it's preloaded this for you and then, uh, yeah, it goes faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know there's a, there's a lot of amazing performance benefits to Gatsby and a lot of work that the team has done to kind of make that like ready to go as soon as you start making a site. Um, the other thing that's really kind of confusing to me is I know that Gatsby has like this data layer and it can compose disparate data sources uh, through a common API, uh, that being GraphQL, right? So if you have markdown files or you have a live CMS or something running on a server somewhere, it can kind of bring all those sources together and give you a consistent uh, querying engine to get all that data uh, in a sane manner, right? But what's confusing to me is if let's say you're going to build a site with like a headless CMS, like headless WordPress or Contentful or something, whenever you're talking about like a build step, does it go through and query that entire API for like all of the posts that are on there? Or does it like build out as much as it can? And then as you go to a post or something, it queries for the data. How does that part work? So it doesn't do any querying at runtime today. So if you are going to build a page for one of your posts, it has to query that post to go get it and bring it down. Um, so you're doing all of your querying at build time when you build your site. Uh, in the future, there's some work going on right now to maybe uh, expose like the Gatsby develop API at runtime. So you could maybe mark one of your queries as like live and then it would go and fetch new or like fresh content uh, after the page loads. Um, but that's that's future work. That's not uh, not how it works today. So my first thought when you say that is, could you do something like, put a WordPress instance of your own on like Heroku or something. And then whenever you build your Gatsby site, like let it spin up and then do all its querying and then spin back down. And then you just have like the static site. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the answer is yes there. Um, and there's people from the WordPress ecosystem that have done projects like uh, WP GraphQL that will uh, 
for sort of expose all your WordPress content as a GraphQL API, uh, that you can just pull that into Gatsby and then start using it. Um, so yeah, there's a bunch of work that's done already in that area. If you're currently using WordPress as a full stack CMS and you want to transition to using it as a headless CMS, uh, I would definitely suggest looking into that because uh, that work is probably done for you. So if you wanted that's to, cool. um, yeah, that, that is really neat. <laughs> I, I might I might try the, the WordPress idea on like Heroku or something. <laughs> um, but if you're going to go and hit like, uh, let's say a, a data source at runtime, um, would you just not do that in GraphQL and just kind of do like the typical React workflow for hitting an API? Like let's say you wanted a weather widget on your page or something. Yeah, I mean, you could do whatever you want, right? If it's some, if it if you have one thing and you're just hitting the weather API and it's just this one area on your page, yeah, maybe you just do like a fetch call, right? Um, if you have data across your entire application that you want to keep up to date, like uh, user data or something like that, uh, you're going to want a more robust solution. And usually what I see people using with Gatsby is uh, like the Apollo client with an additional runtime GraphQL server, right? So okay. if you have user data and you have like profiles and things like that that you don't want to compile statically uh, when you do first when you first do your build because you know it's it's user data it's locked right um, then you do something like you use Apollo GraphQL client um, or you could do like fetch and things like that if you wanted to but mostly what I see is uh, Apollo. So I guess that would kind of be the same solution for if you wanted to have like. Um user authentication in your website or something like that. Maybe you mm -hmm. have some kind of server somewhere that can authenticate, and then that would patch into Apollo, which would then roll into GraphQL for the actual Gatsby site? Yeah, so I mean, it works the same way as any regular React application, right? So any way that you can do authentication in a React application, um, you can do in Gatsby. Um, and there are preset integrations with like Auth0 and uh, other authentication providers if you want to just sort of drop something in. That's really cool. Um, I think a lot of people hear Static Site Generator and they're like thinking, uh, oh, this is kind of like Pug or something. It just like spit, <laughs> spits out a couple HTML pages or something. But it's actually a lot more powerful than that. And you can really use it for you know a lot of these production or client uh, sites that you uh, maybe wouldn't think of Gatsby for at, at first blush. Yeah, for sure. I mean, being somebody who's deep in the Gatsby ecosystem at this point, it's sort of like, okay, like how much do I actually want to use Gatsby for everything? But like for me, I use it for everything. All of my front ends <laughs> are Gatsby these days. Um, and you know, like, like I said, I'm very deep in the Gatsby ecosystem. So that's an easy choice for me because I know how everything works. Um, but that's just to say like, you can do that if you want to. Um, it's a viable path. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate that uh, a lot of people mess with Create React App and React Router and kind of like whenever they're getting their feet wet with React, they also have to learn about like what is Webpack doing? What, how do I actually do routing and, and all that stuff? And Gatsby really makes a lot of that super simple. Yeah. Um, and like it, it makes some choices for you or like optionally make some choices for you and that it uses reach router under the hood and things like that. So if you want to do routing, you have reach router there already. Uh, if you really, I don't know, like hate reach router for some reason, you can install your own router and do that on the client side. Um, but like, I don't know, you already have a router, so why not just use it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, kind of dipping into uh, the plugins and the ecosystem and stuff, 
Uh, I understand you do some work with uh, MDX. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What is MDX? Uh, MDX is Markdown plus JSX, basically. So like, you know how you have short codes in uh, WordPress or short codes in Hugo and uh, ecosystems like that. Um, what if those short codes were just React components? Right. So what is a short code? <laughs> so, <laughs> so for people who are unfamiliar with what short codes are, um, usually they're like custom syntax. Um, it's like open bracket, some word, uh, maybe like a couple things that look like props if you're looking, familiar with React, and then like you close the bracket. Um, so the more the more complex ones end up looking like React JSX components that aren't standardized and are just like custom, like somebody wrote uh, a parser for like a specific syntax. Um, the benefit of using React components for these is that it's uh, a spec, it's JSX, um, it works the same across all implementations, um, and you get the full power of sort of React, right? So you can nest React components, you can pass props in, you can uh, at any point pull something in from NPM like a YouTube player and just use it in your markdown. Um, so it becomes much more powerful. And the ability to use a registry like uh, the NPM registry to pull in additional functionality into your markdown files is really powerful. Yeah, so maybe the use case for this is, you know, traditionally if you're using markdown only, uh, you're kind of stuck with that uh, basic HTML essentially for your content um, or for your blog post or, or whatever. But I guess with MDX you could, hey, for this example or for this post, I want to drop in like a code snippet or a live a uh, code example or something like that. And then you would have that power with MDX, right? Yeah, the way I would phrase it is probably like, if you're just using Markdown and you want new functionality, you have to extend the Markdown syntax somehow, right? So that's how you get people using like custom block extensions and um, like links that aren't links, but do other things kind of stuff. Um, and if you use MDX, you don't have to mess with any of that. You can just use a React component to do whatever you want, whenever you want. So you don't have to extend the Markdown syntax to do anything anymore. You just use JSX to do it. Cool. Um, how did you get into working with MDX or, or contributing to it? Uh, so I did, I guess I wrote my, not my first component library, but I was involved in creating a component library when I was building the team at Docker um, that had to work across a bunch of different teams and things like that. And then spent another few years uh, in that ecosystem of like design systems and uh, building out component libraries and things like that. And the sort of like one of the number one complaints about uh, stuff that you have to do in that ecosystem is how do we document it and how do we use our components when we go to document it and things like that. Um, and MDX is just sort of such an obvious win over all the other approaches that you previously had to say like, hey, I'm going to write some documentation and I'm going to show you how to use this component and I'm going to write some code blocks and then I'm going to write some more documentation. Like MDX just threads all of that together in one the single file and it all just works. Uh, so that's sort of how I got involved originally. I saw the original release of MDX and then went and built Gatsby MDX, which is a bunch of sort of like build time optimizations over MDX. Uh, so that it works in static site generators and uh, things like that. And you can pull MDX in from like a remote CMS like Contentful or WordPress at this point. Um, yeah, so that's how I got involved and then sort of started feeding uh, features that I was building in Gatsby MDX back into MDX core. Uh, so that's how we ended up with 
the shortcode implementation that currently exists in MDX core, for example. Um, I had an API in Gatsby MDX that was sort of like this global scope thing where if you had this special file and you did these couple things, and it's just like you didn't need to import the React components in your files anymore, and you could just use them. Uh, and we took that and we basically merged it into MDX core and as a uh, custom JSX pragma, and now it just works. So that's how I got sort of started working with MDX and then sort of contributing to MDX core and uh, maintaining that whole ecosystem. That's awesome. Um... So it kind of sounds like uh, whenever you're working with MDX uh, and let's say you're working in a blog post or something, mm -hmm. you're kind of like creating a reference to a component that's in your code base. And then what actually gets stored is just the plain markdown plus whatever special syntax there is for MDX. And then at build time, it goes in and pulls uh, the component from your code base and kind of like injects that and builds it out. Yeah, you could think of it that way. Um, probably a, a simpler mental model to think of it is that an MDX file is a React component. So if you write an MDX file, the thing that it compiles to is a React component that you can then import and use. Okay. Uh, and that mental model sort of leads to everything else and how you could use it and things like that, right? Uh, so instead of using like dangerously inserted HTML for like your content, you just uh, wrap it in a component and render it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that, that makes uh that makes sense. Um, yeah, the um the reason that that's so interesting is that uh like your H one, like when you write a heading in Markdown, that compiles to a React JSX H one tag. Which means that if you want to change that, you can uh provide a different H one tag via context, React context, and then just render whatever you want there which is how you can get things like live code blocks uh, while just using regular Markdown backticks. That's really cool. It sounds uh, really powerful, uh, especially for us as developers who like are always trying to do like demos and examples and stuff <laughs> in our blogs and, and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, um, for sure. it sounds like you've done a lot of work to make that really accessible to people and kind of like you bring in the plugin from Gatsby and you're kind of ready to go. Yeah, for sure. Um, I did a lot of work early on to make sure that, so Gatsby has this like special source pages support where if you write like a JavaScript file in the source pages directory, it just turns into a page, right? Um, and early on in Gatsby MDX, I was like, okay, well, what if you could just write an MDX file and it would just turn into a page for you? Um, but it had all the same like dynamic nature of the JavaScript files that you're writing. Um, so I did put a lot of effort early on into making sure that it was drop in, right? Making sure that you installed this thing and then you just wrote an MDX file and you're good. You have it. Um, yeah. So did that kind of, that mentality of let's make it easy for people kind of bring you into working with themes? Uh, themes was something that I was sort of working on. So Gatsby MDX was something I was working on before I had a contract with Gatsby. Um, Gatsby themes was what I was brought on to work on for Gatsby. Uh, so Yes and no. Basically, I was working on Gatsby MDX um, and then had free space. So Kyle was like, hey, you know, come on, come build themes with us. Um, so yeah, you could say that one led into the other. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the ability to make things easy to use sort of permeates all of my uh, approaches to building software. Like I will write a readme before I write an implementation. Because if you... 
How many people <laughs> actually do that? Because that's a really awesome thing to do. I don't know how many people do that. I think a lot <laughs> probably, of people write code first because yeah, uh, it's more fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, you write the readme, you say, okay, this is how it's going to be used. And then that sort of frees you up from like the implementation constraints of like, oh, I built the prototype this way, thus it has to work that way. Uh, as opposed to like, it inverts that and says like, hey, uh, I'm using it this way as a user and like, it's kind of painful and I would wish I could do it that other way. And then it's much more lightweight because now you've figured out that you have a UX problem in your library or in your CLI or whatever. And you can actually base the implementation towards that instead of, you know, whatever you decided to prototype. So that kind of fights the uh, prototype to production thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> cool. So um, first of all, who's Kyle? I know you said Kyle, Kyle Matthews. Kyle Matthews is the um, uh, CEO, CTO of um, Gatsby. Cool. Um, he sounds like a cool guy uh, just from kind of like using Gatsby and checking out the organization and documentation, uh, talking to some people that work there. Uh, I think he's got a, a good vision going on and kind of the whole organization seems to be really moving in a direction that um, I can really get behind. Uh, yeah, for and, sure. And kind of going with that, um, the whole theme project, right? So mm -hmm. what, what are themes in Gatsby? Okay, so themes in Gatsby are, um, depending on who I'm talking to, I describe them different ways. Uh, themes are basically ways to package up different chunks of functionality that you can already build in a Gatsby site and ship them as NPM packages. Uh, and if you haven't worked with Gatsby or you're not like deep into building plugins and things, that sounds a little abstract because it's sort of just like, hey, yeah, you can build, you can package functionality and like ship it as NPM packages. Um, but what it turns out to mean is that you can ship an entire blog as an NPM package and you can ship an e-commerce site as an NPM package. And then you can download both of those, use them in your site, and now you have a blog with an e-commerce theme. Awesome. So um, it sounds like there's an element of composability to themes, whereas before you were kind of stuck with using like one starter or some such. Yeah, and I mean, um, in other ecosystems like WordPress, you basically only install one theme, right? You install your theme and that's it. Uh, you don't get multiple sort of com composable themes. Um, and the Gatsby and with starters as well. So starters are slightly different in that um, starters are, you download the code and then it's yours forever. Themes are much more of the create React app approach to chunks of functionality for Gatsby sites. So you know how you, if you use create React app and you don't inject, you can just upgrade it and then you get a bunch of benefits from the next version. Uh, you can do that with themes. So if you ship a blog post or a blog theme uh, and there's a bug in the slug generation or there's a bug in something and they fix it, all you have to do is upgrade via NPM and you have the new blog theme with all the fixes, right? So it's basically a way of applying the Create React App upgrade model to uh, custom packages of functionality. That's awesome. Um... So with themes, uh, it sounds like you could maybe um, build like a platform for your site and then also use that over and over again for multiple sites, like the e-commerce blog site example. So you've composed mm -hmm. two different themes, one for e-commerce, one for blogs, mm -hmm. and that's like great for your company, but your company has, let's say, four or five different brands. Yep. So 
do themes also enable you to kind of reuse that code base for different uh, different branding and different sites? Yes. Um, so depending on what level you want to do the customization on, if it's just like colors and like font styles and things like that, uh, you can use something called like design tokens, which is basically a JSON file. And you build support for this JSON file into your theme, and then you just pass in different tokens when you go to use it, right? So if you have like a path to a logo and like yellow instead of blue, you can just create the new JSON file in your new site and it overrides all of that stuff. Uh, and taking that concept a little bit further, we have a API in Gatsby called component shadowing or shadowing for short, because uh, it's not necessarily limited to components. Um, in that if you have like a header.jsx file in your theme and in your subsite like Subsite 3 and like 5 and 2 want completely different headers, right? You just create a new header.jsx file in a specific place in your site, and it overrides the one in the theme at build time. So you can just replace it, and you get all the same props passed into the one that you wrote. Uh, yeah, and it makes it pretty easy for people who aren't familiar with the Webpack, the Babel, the whole ecosystem to just say, okay, I'm going to write one file, it's going to be this header. I'm going to create one React component or a function and then return just like the HTML that I want to show up in the header. So could you also do something like, let's say I have uh, three different sites and they all have different branding, different colors, all that stuff, uh, all have different home pages. But mm -hmm. once you get past the home page, they pretty much have the same system behind them, same store, checkout, uh, product line stuff. Um, are you able to override like an entire page with shadowing? Yeah. So like if you have, say, uh, in your theme, a source pages index file, right? Uh, in any of your other sites, you just create a source pages index file and it overrides. So you can just swap out the home page if you want to. Awesome. So um, can you talk about, and I know that this is like really important to Gatsby and it sounds like you personally, um, the work that went into kind of making themes accessible to people and kind of like targeting not just, you know, JavaScript experts or, you know, professional front end developers out there with tons of experience, but, you know, the newcomers to Gatsby and, and the whole uh, web development uh, industry. Yeah, sure. Um, so basically one of the goals of themes was to expand the group of people that are capable of using Gatsby proficiently or like usefully, right? Um, and a lot of those people come from non-programming backgrounds, right? Uh, there are marketers that want to just have a marketing site and be able to modify something and be done with it. There are designers who, uh, you know, want to create a new static site, but they don't want to deal with GraphQL. They don't want to deal with much React, if any. Um, so all of these people that are sort of not necessarily programmers for their day jobs, but still need to, uh, have a useful product at the end of everything um, need a solution. So themes provide a way for people who really know what they're doing and know the internals to build out uh, sections of functionality like a blog theme or an e-commerce theme. And then on the other end, when you're one of these, say, designers or marketers, et cetera, uh, or you're just a junior engineer, right? Uh, shadowing allows you to override sections of your site just by creating a single file and writing a single component. Uh, 
Um, and that's part of the reason that component shadowing has a file system based API, um, as opposed to say like, I don't know, you have to go navigate through the imports and like figure out where it's being imported or exported and like mark it somehow in like a special file, et cetera. Like there, there are many other potential implementations for shadowing that are not uh, the file system API. And uh, one of the reasons that we chose the file system API is because it's conceptually simple. You don't have to really think about it too much. Like there's a place on disk where this header file exists, right? If you're in a Gatsby site, it's like source components header.js or something like that. If you want to change how the header looks, all you do is in your site, you do uh, source my theme components header.js, right? So it's a fairly simple translation from, okay, in this theme, there's this header. I want to override it. Here's where I put it. The other thing is that we can actually automate all of that for you. Uh, so into the CLI, we're building in tools that allow you to say, like, okay, there's a header here, and like I don't know exactly where it is, but I'm going to go look for it. And the CLI will just say, hey, here's a bunch of files. Um, here's what can be shadowed. Here's what's currently being shadowed. Um, and all of that automation also uh, makes it possible to build GUI uh, interfaces on top of that. So we can go even further than we're currently going uh, in that we can build sort of like a page builder almost that takes advantage of these shadowing APIs where you're like, okay, I'm going to click on this. The React Dev tools are going to tell me that it's this header. This header is going to backtrack to that file all automatically without you like really knowing about it, right? And then you're just going to say, I want to eject this and work on it. And we just write the file out for you. And now you have a header that you can go modify. And you didn't really need to write any code. You just needed to point and click. And now if you don't really know any React or you don't really know JSX that well, um, you can just start sort of like modifying small pieces of it in that file without having to really construct a new file, construct a new React component, construct all these things. That's awesome. Um, how close is that or is that GUI-based CLI stuff coming or is it kind of like a ways out still? The CLI stuff will come first. We have prototypes for it already, so it should ship soonish. Um, we don't really commit to dates. We sort of ship things when they're ready and stable and done. Um, but the CLI will come first. The uh, GUI after that will be prototype level, and then uh, that's further out. Um, yeah. What about uh, just themes in general? I know it's, like you said, it's still um, marked as experimental, but uh, how close is that to release? So as of recording, it should be uh, released as stable next week. Uh, provided we get one or two PRs that we're uh, trying to get in, get in. Um, so that is what's next week, July, early July, first week in July. <laughs> uh, yeah. So by the time this comes out, then it will be already released. Yeah. So um, the the core composition algorithm has been stable for a very long time. Uh, shadowing has been stable for a very long time, and we're basically saying, okay, these are going to be since people are using these in production already all the time. Um, in large capacity, we're going to mark them as stable. We're going to support them. And then the additional sort of like more future looking stuff, like the data abstractions, uh, we're going to sort of kick down the road and not call stable yet. We're just going to keep working on those and then include them later. Cool. Um, are you allowed to say like who is using themes in production? Um, I think so at least 
Apollo has been very public about their use of themes. Um, I think there are definitely, so Carbon is also using themes. They're doing a webinar next month, so I can say that too. Um, and Carbon is IPM's uh, design systems uh, and team. So they're basically shipping their design system uh, along with their themes out to all of their users. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so those are those are two that I know I can say, um, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally understand that. Um, so I know that we talked about a lot of like accessibility and bringing new people into the ecosystem, mm -hmm. making things easy for them. Uh, is there anybody that's going to work on the theme documentation or is already doing it or has done it? Yeah, so the theme documentation is one of our blockers for stable. When I referred to a couple PRs that need to land, uh, documentation is one of those PRs that need to land before we can call stable. Uh, and that goes back to sort of like Gatsby as an ecosystem has a lot of documentation that is fairly well written and fairly largely uh, expansive in terms of you go, you start learning how to use Gatsby, but really it's telling you how to write React and then really is telling you how to do like all these other things in the ecosystem that you didn't even really know you needed to do. Um, so documentation is a really uh, pivotal point of Gatsby and onboarding people and making people feel like they can be productive and uh, not scaring them off. So yeah, documentation is definitely a blocker for us calling this thing stable. We, um, first of all, it's a modest statement to say that they're fairly comprehensive. The Gatsby documentation <laughs> is probably the best documentation I've ever read as a web developer. Yep. Uh, it either tells you how to do exactly what you need to do, or it links out to a resource that's going to tell you exactly what you need to do. So it'll link out to Git, um, to HTML resources, CSS, uh, React, the, the whole, everything that you need. Um, so uh, I will go ahead and cheerlead for it and shout it out. <laughs> Chris was very modest about it. Uh, we interviewed um, Amberly Romo uh, last week, and she talked about all the work that went into it. And um, I checked it out in preparation for talking to you, um, Chris, and I love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's it's better than good. It's better than fair. Um, it's amazing. Uh, you could almost use it as, as a code boot camp in itself, just learning how to be a, a front-end developer because it's so so good about not leaving you in the dust on anything. And to be clear, that credit doesn't go to me for writing the documentation. We have docs people that uh, handle that and like take care of that and care about that a lot. And they are the Amberly and Marcy and Jason and people like that are all uh, really strongly driving that, even though it's a strong thing in the Gatsby ecosystem as well. Yeah, and uh, those it's always unsung, but the people that write good documentation, um, I don't think they get enough credit. Uh, as opposed to sure. whenever there's bad documentation, then it's like there's a <laughs> lot of noise about it. Um, so, yeah, big, big props and, and kudos to Amberly and Jason uh, and that whole team over there that's making great strides towards setting an example for good documentation. Um, kind of along with that, uh, I know that you kind of have um, a lot of opinions about, you know, just junior developers in general. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you're definitely not new. You're, I, I would consider a senior developer, somebody that has a lot of experience, has a, is a full stack developer. Um, what, what's your dog in this fight of junior developers? And can you maybe describe a little bit of your axe to grind or the problem uh, at large in the industry? 
Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so my dog in this fight is that I've been in a position. Um, well, originally I was a junior and I didn't really get a lot of help and I had to teach myself a lot of things and learn a lot of things on my own. And like, it would have been much nicer if people had just told me, uh, yeah. a bunch of things that they already knew. Um, but also I've been in a position of, uh, having responsibility for growing other people and setting them on a good direction in their careers uh, in a couple of the positions that I've held in the past. And uh, that weight of responsibility has really sort of taken hold on me because I sort of uh, realized how much of an influence I, as the senior person on those teams, um, or like the lead or the manager or whatever, um, how much influence you actually have on people. and not just on like how far they go in their technical uh, career, but like whether they even stay in the industry or not. Um, so that's my dog in this fight. I want, um, if I'm going to take that responsibility and help people, I want to be able to do that for as many people as possible, uh, which is why I make my opinions known when people are, uh, when people are on Twitter going, um, should I call myself junior on my resume? And I go, no, never do that. Never start talking about, um, never give people a reason to discount your experience, right? Even if you are uh, feeling like an imposter, you feel like maybe you don't belong in a certain place, um, most people feel that a lot. Uh, don't give people a free reason to discount you. Yeah, absolutely. Don't sell yourself short, right? You know, don't, don't disqualify yourself from anything. Um, yeah. You know, let the company decide that or the team decide that um give yourself a shot right um yeah also there used to be like actual true blue junior developer positions and it seems like they've kind of disappeared from job boards yeah so have you had any experience with uh companies that only hire senior developers or they don't even post for juniors or there's like an internal pushback in teams or management that says like no we can't take on juniors yeah, I think there's an overriding um, culture in the industry, especially, so I'm in San Francisco. So when I say culture in the industry, I uh, mostly mean San Francisco because that's where most of my experience is. There's an overriding culture in the industry to sort of let other people train them uh, and then only hire senior people. And there are companies that do that sort of on purpose and they're sort of only hiring senior people because they're like, we're the best and like we should only hire senior people and whatever. Um, and there are some people that do it sort of on accident where they start hiring like their friends and their friends, friends and the people that they know. And like, uh, it turns out that those people have all been in the industry for eight to 10 to 15 years. Right. And, uh, you know, you end up with not so many junior people. Uh, and the reality is that the way that you get senior people and the way that you, uh, build a company with a good culture and a good like social brand around that kind of stuff is to actually put an education program in place and train people because not only are the people who are coming in um say out of boot camp or just out of college or not even in college right they just taught themselves um, not only do those people need upskill help but the other people in your company need upskill help in different areas Somebody who's writing Haskell on the back end is not going to know how to write a React component. Somebody who's writing uh, CSS on the front end is not going to know how to uh, deploy a container to a Kubernetes cluster, right? You need to have this knowledge uh, written down somewhere and a way for people to follow it 
uh, or you're not going to get senior people. Like you're not going. It's sort of the problem of like, what happens if we train them and then they leave? It's like, okay, well, what right. happens if we don't and they stay? <laughs> <laughs> like, you want to have these training programs in place because not only do the junior people need them, but like the senior people who are junior in other areas need them as well. Yeah, I've been I've been reading into this a lot lately. Um, I, I want to give a talk on it actually because it's it's so silly in a sense, but pervasive at the same time in the industry. It feels like we're yeah. shooting ourselves in the foot because we're only catering to senior developers and just making this problem worse and worse by doing so. So you've got like mm -hmm. this huge divide of a massive pool of junior developers out there that are hungry and looking for work, um, and then like never getting their shot and leaving the industry, but at the same time, we have an ever-growing amount of positions, right? Yeah. And so we're making that worse and worse by, you know, poaching senior developers from company to company and, hey, we'll, we'll give you a $20,000 boost if you come work for us. And then a year later, mm -hmm. another company does that to them. And all of yep. a sudden you have like six-figure, you know, salary developers that, you know, are, are doing this work and maybe they're not that great as senior developers. You know what I mean? They they just kind of like they have the years of experience, so they got the job. Whereas maybe you had a junior developer that you could have trained up over a year and could have yeah. outperformed that person and you would yeah, have paid sure. a lot less. Right. And then on top of that, like you really hit this nail on the head of what happens if you don't invest in your own people's training and education? <laughs> right. Like, yep. How how do you what happens when your senior developer leaves? How do you onboard somebody to this incredibly complex code base that you've spent all this time on, you know, mm -hmm. with all these senior developers? You know, now you have a new senior developer who's just as useless as a junior developer to it because <laughs> neither one of them has ever touched the code, right? Yep. And you have no documentation in place. So um it's it's just kind of bizarre to to see all this stuff um flying around on the internet like we can't afford to hire juniors. <laughs> you know, we, we can't spend the time, right? Yeah, I mean, you can't really afford not to, right? In my opinion, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and if you're gonna like, if you're gonna spend six months looking for a senior person to fill a slot, that's six months of training you could have given somebody. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> like, if it takes you six months to a year to fill a position, that is a lot of training on your specific tech stack that you could have given somebody. Yeah, and and aside from that. Um, you know, you're you're depriving your current team of developers from communicating and mentoring, teaching mm -hmm. um, junior developers and developing their own, you know, skills as uh, senior developers and leaders in your organization, right? Yep. Yeah, one hundred percent. Um. Yeah, this, it's just so mind blowing to me. <laughs> have, have you uh, have you had to fight this like in an organization or in the workforce or anything? I don't want you to call anybody out or anything, but have you kind of come across this in the field? Yeah, I mean there there are people that um, and like I mean even if you just talk about interviewing, and I don't even mention anybody specifically, interviewing in tech is uh, I don't know. I don't know if you can curse on this podcast, but uh, it's really bad. bad. <laughs> we are not explicit. It's really, really bad, <laughs> is what I will say. <laughs> I 
I do cuss <laughs> a lot, but not on the show. <laughs> right. I think about so, a lot of cuss words when I think about this topic. But <laughs> Yeah, that's what's going through my head right now. It's basically like interviewing in tech is really, really, really bad. Um, so you end up with these interview pipelines where somebody's like, oh, yeah, well, but they didn't remember what the second argument to like map when you used it this specific way and then bound it was. It's like, who cares? You can Google that. Like, I can Google that in, like, the next 10 seconds. Like, I can, I, you can ask me, I can Google it, I can tell you uh, in less time than, like, I can do anything else, right? Uh, so, like, yeah, I, you run into this problem all over the place, and it's not just, like, the training, and it's not just the hard problems of, like, how do you, uh, like, grow people. It's also the, how do we prevent gatekeeping on a level that isn't useful? Right. Right. Yeah, actually. Um, so Eddie and I participate in and kind of run a junior meetup uh, over here in, in Orlando. And um, one of the first meetups that we had, we were kind of talking about like helping the community and getting juniors like more skills and being more marketable. And we had some senior developers show up, which was very interesting. And we got onto the subject of whiteboarding and interviews. And this one gentleman piped up and said, we do it just to see them squirm. And I was like, why? <laughs> He's like, I want to see if you bang your head on the desk. I want to see if you leave. Do you cuss? Do you cry? Do you ask for help? What happens? And I'm like, I get what you're saying, that you want people that can communicate and ask for help and know when to like say no to a problem. But why torture them, right? Yeah. I mean, computer science or like engineering is a comfortable job. Like, yeah. it's really comfy. Like, you sit in the chair and you have all of the internet to help you. Uh, there's really no reason to be, like, raking somebody over a whiteboard over a problem just to see how they react in the moment. Nobody is going to need to know that uh, on the spot, right? And if they, so, if they do need to know that on the spot, your infrastructure as a company is horrible. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, if you bring in a junior uh, engineer and they make a commit to the code base and it goes to production and it takes down the entire site, that's your problem, not theirs. Mm-hmm. You yeah. messed up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, your your code just can't be this brittle, right? And Yeah, and your processes can't be that brittle, right? Yeah. Right, and, and in that way, like you should have junior developers because you need people making mistakes on your code base to sniff yeah. out these problems before they actually go to production, right? Yep, so, for sure. Uh, yeah, I could talk for hours about this because it's it's so it's so crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've never been called at, at three o'clock in the morning to come into the job and whiteboard JavaScript to save our production site. Like that has never happened. To me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I will say that one time I did. Uh, I was doing work for a very small startup, and they had like basically me on contract and like one other person and uh, like the founder and like two people that they were using to do some marketing work and stuff. And they were on a call with uh, a VC uh, that they were trying to like raise funding from. Uh, And the site was like seasonal. So it wasn't necessarily in like active, like the the site wasn't being heavily used at this point. Um, And what they needed was to have all of the data like moved to like three or six months forward. Uh, so we basically 
opened a challenge to the SQL database and uh, did a, like a plus interval on like a whole set of data and moved it forward like six months just Yikes. for this call while they were on it. <laughs> and then once they stopped the call, we moved it all back. Um, so it's not that things like that never happen, but that is an example of a uh, lacking infrastructure company that uh, that should never happen in a regular company, right? That should never be a thing that you have to do to save your job. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know, you're not jumping out of an airplane to uh, save the the code base or anything. You don't need like <laughs> to be this, you know, superhero uh, ninja, whatever, 10x uh, rock star developer. You know, you we're we're all you know have our moments where we're on Google, just like please please tell me the answer to why my code doesn't work. Right. <laughs> that experience does not correlate to years of experience. It it happens constantly. So. Yeah, I mean, I still do that. I like even with so uh, Gatsby Themes is built on top of Webpack, and the Webpack APIs we use are uh, I wouldn't say well documented. Um, so I did a lot of reading the source code and like going to find other people who had read the source code and then built something like two years ago. Uh, so <laughs> you still end up googling everything, even if uh, you get to a point where you're very experienced in a particular area. Yeah, I wonder if uh, if Webpack would have a different uh, maybe image if they had you know spent as much time on documentation and kind of like onboarding people because as it stands like Webpack, Babel, that whole thing uh, is like just this strikes fear into the heart of people whenever you, you start talking about it like oh you want to learn yeah. JavaScript hey check out Webpack and they're like nope I'll just stay over here in CSS <laughs> land <laughs> yeah I think that that's uh... I could probably fill up an entire podcast talking about projects and documentation and like the level of support that most of the open source projects that the entire industry relies on are just like maintained by a single person. Uh, mm. And at that point, do you have time to write the documentation or not? Like, yeah, the whole internet <laughs> is like bubble gum and duct tape. Right? Yeah. I could, yeah, I could fill multiple podcasts probably with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to have you back for that. <laughs> that would be a fun discussion. Um, cool. So, uh, we're going to jump into uh, some some nerd stuff real quick, but uh, I cool. want to give you a chance to uh, plug whatever projects you're working on. Um, I know we talked about themes and, and whatnot, but do you have like a Twitter? Do you have a website? Uh, where can people find yeah. you? Um, so I have a Twitter. It's at uh, Chris Biscardi, which is my name. Um, that's usually my name on most platforms. So that'll be my name on GitHub. That'll be my name on Twitch. Um, I stream... If you're interested in seeing like how Gatsby themes and MDX and things like that get built, I stream the development that I do for those projects live on Twitch. Um, and I have a schedule up there. Um, and there are archives of that on my YouTube channel, which is also Chris Biscardi. So I use basically the same name everywhere. If you just Google me and then platform, you'll probably find it. Um, as far as projects and things to plug, obviously Gatsby themes is going stable very soon. So go check that out. If you run into problems, let me know. I would love to hear about them, um, and I would love to fix them. Um, and then, yeah, I do a bunch of egghead content and things like that. So I'm doing a uh, Golang course uh, for basically JavaScript people who want to get into Golang, and it's uh, the topic is GraphQL Server. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, dumb question. Is Golang the same as Go? Yes. OK, okay fantastic. <laughs> yeah, if you're Googling it, you're probably using Golang. Um, and there are people who have like an opinion on whether you call it Go or Golang, uh, but in reality, it doesn't matter. Just like use Golang when you Google, and then like I don't know, call it Go or Golang, whatever you want. 
Fantastic. Uh, we will have show notes that have links to all of those awesome um, things that Chris just talked about. Uh, but now we want to talk about uh, nerd stuff and fun stuff. So uh, we have a little segment at the end of every show called Nerd Minute, where we just talk about like comics, video games, books, whatever that we're into. Um, so, Chris, what have you been into lately? Uh, so I just went to the Rocket League oh. uh, Championship Series in New Jersey in person. Cool. Uh, and it is the first uh, video game in-person event that I've ever been to. I've never been to a LAN party. I uh, did not grow up going to LAN parties. I did not grow up going to uh, competitions and things like that. So this is the first time I've ever been to one. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we set a world record for the longest wave in a stadium <laughs> at like 29 minutes or wow. something like that. Um, the wave was going so long that the announcers like were having trouble talking over it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, the the community is really great and yeah i would i would suggest it if you're into that sort of thing i uh i don't want to 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 get into like how old you are but <laughs> for anybody out there that doesn't understand land party <laughs> there used to be this thing where you drag like your friends would get together and everybody would drag their entire computer over to somebody's <laughs> house and then locally connect all of them to play an online computer video game. <laughs> uh, these things were actually fun, and they existed before laptops. So yeah. it, was a, it was a huge setup, a huge teardown. But uh, uh, I did it a couple times, um, and it was awesome. We uh, we played like Quake Three and um, what's well, Unreal Tournament and that, that kind of thing. So super nice. awesome. Nowadays, you can just get online and play with people. So, <laughs> yeah, which is definitely what I do. <laughs> so, uh, were you competing in the the Rocket League? Um, I was not. Um, okay. I am. Uh, so I'm quite good at the game at this point. Ask. I'm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm almost the max rank in the online competitive. Uh, what do you um, play on? Or approaching max rank. Uh, I'm a PC gamer now because um, I told myself if I was getting close to max rank, I would buy a PC and invest in actually like having a gaming setup. Uh, but historically I've been PlayStation for ever, like PS2, PS3, PS4. Um, so yeah, I, I'm quite good, but also like the difference between, uh, I guess the levels are like bronze at the lowest and like grand champ at the highest. And the difference between grand champ and a professional is about the same. Hmm. Okay. So, like, bronze is, like, I don't really know where the gas button is. Okay. Uh, and grand champ is, like, yeah, okay, I might be able to hit a flip reset once in a while. And then the <laughs> pros are, like, I'm going to hit a flip reset to beat two defenders in the air and then redirect it as a pass to a teammate wow. or something. Right? Like, uh, the plays that they were pulling off were insane. And they're, like, uh, there are roll-ups of, like, the top ten shots at this point on YouTube if... Uh, anybody's interested in going yeah, I might to check that. that out. Yeah, shoot shoot it over to me. I'll put it in the show notes because that sounds <laughs> yeah. fun. Sure. Um, I've never actually played Rocket League. But it's I've, really I've fun. It and it's really good. I, I think I get it, but I, I just I guess I need to try it. Maybe Eddie and I can jump yeah. on or something. I, Chris, if you want to. I play with my daughter. Yeah, sure. She's nine. Um, so And we we just play the computer. It's always at, on reset yeah. to rookie. She just drives around in circles and hits the other cars while I'm trying to score. <laughs> and whatnot, but it's, it's still fun. Yeah, nice. it's, it's really cool. Is the, uh, is the Rocket League community pretty welcoming? Or? Yeah, it's reasonably welcoming. Um, there are game modes that are a little bit more toxic. Like if you play uh, 1v1, 
Oh. Uh, the only person to blame is yourself, <laughs> and that's really tough on people. Um, so I'd suggest turning like the in-game chat off if you were going to go play 1v1. But otherwise, it's fairly welcoming, yeah. Fair enough. Cool. Um, anything else that you're into recently? Uh, gaming or, or otherwise? Uh, Nerd-wise, uh, no, I think that's about it at this point. I built a new computer recently. Oh, cool. So, um, yeah, I could, I could talk about that. But well, uh, Dare I ask what the budget was? I want to... Uh, so... <laughs> Instead of answering the budget question, I'll answer the card there, (laughs) which gives you an indication of the budget. Um, So I got the RTX 2080 Ti. Oh, Uh, So money is no (laughs) option. This is... uh, So I got this computer as a replacement for my main computing platform, which has uh, been a Mac Pro trash can style since, like, late 2013 or something like that. So it's been six years at this point. Uh, and it's starting to like sort of die. And uh, when I stream, the stream cuts out sometimes on the Mac. Mm. So I needed something else. Um, and this is my upgrade for work and also for gaming. Uh, so yeah, my software engineering money goes back into making me more productive at being a software engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and also I had got a nice graphics card. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. Fair enough. However you can justify it, right? Yeah. <laughs> do you do LEDs and stuff like that in the case? Yeah, it's all like RGB'd up and everything. And uh, that's partially because I like lights and partially because like I couldn't put, I couldn't be bothered to put the effort in to find stuff that wasn't L- like LED. Okay. So it just came with LEDs by default. And I was like, eh, all right. Well, it's going to be colorful. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much all gaming stuff nowadays. Yeah. It's like as soon as you assemble anything that's a gaming setup, you can see it from space from all the lights and stuff that's on it. <laughs> cool. Um, Eddie, you got anything? Anything you're into? Nope. Uh, no, <laughs> I haven't really. <laughs> we talked about Detective Pikachu already. Um, that's that was about it. Yeah. You? Cool. Uh, I've been watching um, a little bit of anime recently. I don't know if Chris you're into that. Uh, I don't Rise know it very well, no. Uh, Rise of the Shield Hero, One Punch Man, uh, Attack on Titan, that kind of thing. I've uh, heard some of those names. <laughs> yeah, some of them are they're wrapping up kind of their their runs or their seasons. So uh, cool. that's kind of what I've been into. But uh, yeah. Uh, I think I am gonna have to to go check out Rocket League. I'm I'm excited. Yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Awesome, cool. Well, um, I think we can wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so so much, Chris, for taking the time to talk yeah. with us and answer all our questions today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for uh, having me. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Please head over to techjunior.dev and hit subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter. You can find us at Tech Junior Podcast. Also, you can find me, Eddie, at Ed Otero. That's E-D-0-T-E-R-0. And you can find Lee at Lee Warwick Jr. Thanks, guys, and take care.